It savors more of the spirit of the Pharisees, who never doubted but that they were saints, and the most eminent saints, and were bold to go to God and come up near to Him, and lift up their eyes and thank Him for the great distinction He had made between them and other men. And when Christ intimated that they were blind and graceless, despised the suggestion, John 9.40. And some of the Pharisees which were with Him heard these words and said unto Him, Are we blind also? If they had had more of the spirit of the publican, who in a sense of his exceeding unworthiness stood afar off, and durst not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but smote on his breast and cried out of himself as a sinner, their confidence would have more resembled that of one who humbly trusts and hopes in Christ and has no confidence in himself. If we do but consider what the hearts of natural men are, what principles they are under the dominion of, what blindness and deceit, what self-flattery, self-exaltation, and self-confidence reign there, we need not at all wonder that their high opinion of themselves and confidence of their happy circumstances be as high and strong as mountains, and as violent as a tempest, when once conscience is blinded and convictions killed with false high affections, when two of those forementioned principles are let loose, fed and prompted by false joys and comforts, excited by some pleasing imaginations, and impressed by Satan transforming himself into an angel of light. When once a hypocrite is thus established in a false hope, he is not those things to cause him to call his hope in question that oftentimes are the occasions of the doubting of true saints. As first, he has not that cautious spirit, that great sense of the vast importance of a sure foundation, and that dread of being deceived. The comforts of the true saints increase, awakening and caution, and a lively sense how great a thing it is to appear before an infinitely, holy, just, and omniscient judge. But false comforts put an end to these things, and dreadfully stupefy the mind, Secondly, the hypocrite is not the knowledge of his own blindness and the deceitfulness of his own heart, and that mean opinion of his own understanding that the true saint has. Those that are deluded with false discoveries and affections are ever more highly conceited of their light and understanding. Thirdly, the devil does not assault the hope of the hypocrite as he does the hope of a true saint. The devil is a great enemy to a true Christian hope, not only because it tends greatly to the comfort of him that hath it, but also because it is a thing of holy, heavenly nature, greatly tending to promote and cherish grace in the heart, and a great incentive to strictness and diligence in the Christian life. But he is no enemy to the hope of a hypocrite, which above all things establishes his interest in him that has it. A hypocrite may retain his hope without opposition as long as he lives, the devil never disturbing it, nor attempting to disturb it. But there is perhaps no true Christian but what has his hope assaulted by him. Satan assaulted Christ himself upon this, whether he were the Son of God or no, and the servant is not above his master, nor the disciple above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that is most privileged in this world to be as his master. Fourthly, he who has a false hope is not that sight of his own corruptions which the saint has. A true Christian has ten times so much to do with his heart and his corruptions as a hypocrite.
and the sins of his heart and practice appear to him in their blackness, they look dreadful, and it often appears a very mysterious thing that any grace can be consistent with such corruption or should be in such a heart. But a false hope hides corruption, covers it all over, and the hypocrite looks clean and bright in his own eyes. There are two sorts of hypocrites, one that are deceived with their outward morality and external religion, many of whom are professed Arminians in the doctrine of justification, and the other are those that are deceived with false discoveries and elevations, who often cry down works and men's own righteousness and talk much of free grace, but at the same time make a righteousness of their discoveries and of their humiliation and exalt themselves to heaven with them. These two kinds of hypocrites, Mr. Shepherd, in his exposition of the parable of the ten virgins, distinguishes by the names of legal and evangelical hypocrites, and often speaks of the latter as the worse. And it is evident that the latter are commonly by far the more confident in their hope, and with the more difficulty brought off from it. I have scarcely known an instance of such an one in my life that has been undeceived. The chief grounds of the confidence of many of them are the very same kind of impulses and supposed revelations, sometimes with texts of scripture and sometimes without, that so many of late have had concerning future events, calling these impulses about their good estate the witness of the Spirit, entirely misunderstanding the nature of the witness of the Spirit, as I shall show hereafter. Those that have had visions and impulses about other things, it has generally been to reveal such things as they are desirous and fond of. And no wonder that persons who give heed to such things have the same sort of visions or impressions about their own eternal salvation, to reveal to them that their sins are forgiven them, that their names are written in the book of life, that they are in high favor with God, and so on, and especially when they earnestly seek, expect, and wait for evidence of their election and salvation this way is the surest and most glorious evidence of it. Neither is it any wonder that, when they have such a supposed revelation of their good estate, it raises in them the highest degree of confidence of it. It is found by abundant experience that those who are led away by impulses and imagined revelations are extremely confident. They suppose that the great Jehovah has declared these and those things to them, and having his immediate testimony, a strong confidence is the highest virtue. Hence they are bold to say, I know this or that, I know certainly, I am as sure as that I have a being, and the like, and they despise all argument and inquiry in the case. And, above all things else, it is easy to be accounted for that impressions and impulses about that which is so pleasing, so suiting their self-love and pride as their being the dear children of God, distinguished from most in the world in his favor, should make them strongly confident, especially when with their impulses and revelations they have high affections which they take to be the most eminent exercises of grace. I have known of several persons that have had a fond desire of something of a temporal nature through a violent passion that has possessed them, and they have been earnestly pursuing the thing they have desired should come to pass, and have met with great difficulty and many discouragements in it, but at last have had an impression or supposed revelation that they should obtain what they sought." 
and they have looked upon it as a sure promise from the Most High, which has made them most ridiculously confident against all manner of reason to convince them to the contrary, and all events working against them. And there is nothing hinders but that persons who are seeking their salvation may be deceived by the light delusive impressions, and be made confident the same way." the confidence of many of this sort whom that Mr. Shepherd calls evangelical hypocrites is like the confidence of some madmen who think they are kings they will maintain it against all manner of reason and evidence and in one sense it is much more immovable than a truly gracious assurance a true assurance is not upheld but by the soul being kept in a holy frame and grace maintained in lively exercise if the actings of grace do much decay in the Christian, and he falls into a lifeless frame, he loses his assurance. But this confidence of hypocrites will not be shaken by sin. They, at least some of them, will maintain their boldness in their hope in the most corrupt frames and wicked ways, which is a sure evidence of their delusion. Mr. Shepherd speaks of it as a presumptuous peace, that is not interrupted and broke by evil works, and says that the spirit will sigh and not sing in that bosom whence corrupt dispositions and passions break out, and that, though men in such frames may seem to maintain the consolation of the spirit, and not suspect their hypocrisy under pretense of trusting the Lord's mercy, yet they cannot avoid the condemnation of the world." In quote, parable of the ten virgins. And here I cannot but observe that there are certain doctrines often preached to the people which need to be delivered with more caution and explanation than they frequently are. For as they are by many understood, they tend greatly to establish this delusion and false confidence of hypocrites. The doctrines I speak of are those of Christians living by faith, not by sight. They're giving glory to God by trusting Him in the dark, living upon Christ and not upon experiences, not making their good frames the foundation of their faith. These are excellent and important doctrines indeed rightly understood, but corrupt and destructive as many understand them. The scripture speaks of our living or walking by faith and not by sight in no other way than these. When we are governed by a respect to eternal things, which are the objects of faith, which are not seen, and not by a respect to temporal things, which are seen, when we believe things revealed that we never saw with bodily eyes, and also exercise faith in the promise of future things, without yet seeing or enjoying the things promised, or knowing the way how they can be fulfilled. This will be easily evident to anyone that looks over the scriptures which speak of faith in opposition to sight. 2 Corinthians 4.18 and 5.7, Hebrews 11.1, 1, 8.13, 17.27 and 29, Romans 8.24 and John 20.29. 20, Dr. Ames speaks of it as a thing by which the peace of a wicked man may be distinguished from the peace of a godly man that the peace of a wicked man continues whether he performs the duties of piety and righteousness or no, providing those crimes are avoided that appear horrid to nature itself. In quote, cases of conscience. 
But this doctrine, as it is understood by many, is that Christians ought firmly to believe and trust in Christ without spiritual light, even although they are in a dark, dead frame, and for the present have no spiritual experiences or discoveries. It is truly the duty of those who are thus in darkness to come out of darkness into light and to believe, but that they should confidently believe and trust while they yet remain without spiritual light or sight is as anti-scriptural and absurd doctrine. The scripture is ignorant of any such faith in Christ of the operation of God that is not founded in the spiritual sight of Christ. That believing on Christ which accompanies a title to everlasting life is a seeing the Son and believing on Him, John 6.40. True faith in Christ is never exercised any further than persons behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord and have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.18 and 4.6. They into whose minds the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, does not shine, they believe not, 2 Corinthians 4.4. That faith, which is without spiritual light, is not the faith of the children of the light and of the day, but the presumption of the children of darkness. And therefore to press and urge them to believe without any spiritual light or sight tends greatly to help forward the delusions of the prince of darkness. Men not only cannot exercise faith without some spiritual light, but they can exercise faith only just in such proportion as they have spiritual light. Men will trust in God no further than they know Him, and they cannot be in the exercise of faith in Him further than they have a sight of His fullness and faithfulness in exercise. Nor can they have the exercise of a trust in God any further than they are in a gracious frame. They that are in a dead, carnal frame doubtless ought to trust in God, because that would be the same thing as coming out of their bad frame and turning to God. But to exhort men confidently to trust in God and so hold up their hope and peace, though they are not in a gracious frame, and continue still to be so, is the same thing in effect as to exhort them confidently to trust in God, but not with a gracious trust. And what is that but a wicked presumption? It is just as impossible for men to have a stronger, lively trust in God when they have no lively exercises of grace or sensible Christian experiences as it is for them to be in the lively exercises of grace without the exercises of grace. I pause in the narrating of this book to speak to those who are listening who take an objection with Edward's view here to tell you that if you will be patient, at the end of this book, I will also narrate the appendix to the book, which is a letter written, written to another pastor, where Jonathan Edwards defends his position. But I go on. It is true that it is the duty of God's people to trust in Him when in darkness, even though they remain still in darkness, in one sense, when the aspects of His providence are dark, and look as though God had forsaken them and did not hear their prayers. Many clouds gather, many enemies surround them with a formidable aspect, threatening to swallow them up, 
and all events of providence seemed to be against them. All circumstances seemed to render the promise of God difficult to be fulfilled, but he must be trusted out of sight, i.e., when we cannot see which way it is possible for him to fulfill his word. Everything but God's mere word makes it look unlikely, so that if persons believe, they must hope against hope. Thus the ancient patriarchs, and thus the psalmist Jeremiah, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the apostle Paul gave glory to God by trusting him in darkness. We have many instances of such a glorious, victorious faith in the eleventh of the Hebrews. But how different a thing is this from trusting in God without spiritual sight, and being at the same time in a dead and carnal frame. Spiritual light may be led into the soul in one way, when it is not in another. And so there is such a thing as the saints trusting in God, and also knowing their good estate, when they are destitute of some kinds of experience. For instance, they may have clear views of God's all-sufficiency and faithfulness, and so may confidently trust in Him, and know that they are His children, and yet not have those close, clear, and sweet ideas of His love as at other times. Thus it was with Christ Himself in His last passion. They may also have views of God's sovereignty, holiness, and all-sufficiency, enabling them quietly to submit to Him, and to exercise a sweet and most encouraging hope in His fullness, when they are not satisfied of their own good estate. But how different things are these from confidently trusting in God without spiritual light or experience? Those who thus insist on persons living by faith when they have no experience and are in a very bad frame are also very absurd in their notions of faith. What they mean by faith is believing that they are in a good estate. Hence, they count it a dreadful sin for them to be in doubt of their state, whatever frames they are in, and whatever wicked things they do, because it is a great and heinous sin of unbelief. And he is the best man, and puts most honor upon God, that maintains his hope of his good estate, the most confidently and immovably when he is the least light or experienced, that is to say, when he is in the worst frame and way, because forsooth, that it is a sign that he is strong in faith, giving glory to God, and against hope believes in hope. But from what Bible do they learn this notion of faith, that it is a man's confidently believing that he is in a good estate? Solomon Stoddard, in his Nature of Saving Conversion, writes, Men do not know that they are godly by believing that they are godly. We know many things by faith, Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the word of God. Faith is the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. Thus men know the trinity of persons of the Godhead, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he that believes in him will have eternal life, the resurrection of the dead. And if God should tell a saint that he has grace, he might know it by believing the word of God. But it, but it is not this way that godly men do know that they have grace. It is not revealed in the word, and the Spirit of God doth not testify it to particular persons, quote. If this be faith, the Pharisees had faith in an imminent degree, some of whom Christ teaches committed the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost. The scripture represents faith is that by which men are brought into a good estate, and therefore it cannot be the same thing as believing that they are already in a good estate. 
To suppose that faith consists in persons believing that they are in a good estate is in effect the same thing as to suppose that faith consists in a person's believing that he has faith or in believing that he believes. Indeed, persons doubting of their good estate may in several respects arise from unbelief. It may be from unbelief or because they have so little faith that they have so little evidence of their good estate. If they had more experience of the actings of faith, and so more experience of the exercise of grace, they would have clearer evidence that their state was good, and so their doubts would be removed, and their doubting of their state may be from unbelief thus, when though there be many things that are good evidences of a work of grace in them, yet they doubt very much whether they are really in a state of favor with God, because it is they, those that are so unworthy, and have done so much to provoke God to anger against them. Their doubts in such a case arise from unbelief as they arise from lack of a sufficient sense of, in reliance on, the infinite riches of God's grace and the sufficiency of Christ for the chief of sinners. They may also be from unbelief when they doubt of their state because of the mystery of God's dealings with them. They are not able to reconcile such dispensations with God's favor to them. Some doubt whether they have any interest in the promises, because from the aspect of providence they appear so unlikely to be fulfilled. The difficulties in the way are so many and great. Such doubting arises from lack of dependence upon God's almighty power and His knowledge and wisdom as infinitely above theirs. But yet, in such persons, their unbelief and their doubting of their state are not the same thing, though one arises from the other. Persons may be greatly to blame for doubting of their state on such grounds as these, and they may be to blame that they have no more grace and no more of its present exercises to be an evidence to them of the goodness of their state. Men are doubtless to blame for being in a dead, carnal frame, but when they are in such a frame and have no sensible experience of the exercises of grace, but on the contrary are very much under the prevalence of their lusts and an unchristian spirit, they are not to blame for doubting of their state. It is as impossible in the nature of things that a holy and Christian hope should be kept alive in its clearness and strength, in such circumstances as it is to keep the light in the room when the candle that gives it is put out, or to maintain the bright sunshine in the air when the sun has gone down. Distant experiences, when darkened by present prevailing lust and corruption, will never keep alive a gracious confidence and assurance. If the one prevail, the other sickens and decays upon it. Does any one attempt to nourish and strengthen a little child by repeated blows on the head with a hammer? Nor is it all to be lamented that persons doubted their state in such circumstances, but on the contrary, it is desirable in every way best that they should. It is agreeable to that wise and merciful constitution of things which God hath established. For so hath God constituted things in its dispensations towards his own people, that when their love decays and the exercises of it become weak, fear should arise. They need fear, then, to restrain them from sin, to excite them to care for the good of their souls, and so to stir them up to watchfulness and diligence in religion.
But God has so ordered that when love rises and is in vigorous exercise, and fear should vanish and be driven away. For then they need it not, having a higher and more excellent principle in exercise to restrain them from sin and stir them up to duty. No other principles will ever make men conscientious but one of these two, fear or love. And therefore, if one of these should not prevail as the other decayed, God's people, when fallen into dead and carnal frames, when love is asleep, would be lamentably exposed indeed. Hence God has wisely ordained that these two opposite principles of love and fear should rise and fall like the two opposite scales of a balance. When one rises, the other sinks. Light and darkness unavoidably succeed each other. If light prevails so much, does darkness cease? and no more, and if light decay, so much does darkness prevail. So it is in the heart of a child of God. If divine love decay and fall asleep and lust prevail, the light and joy of hope goes out and dark fear arises. And if, on the contrary, divine love prevail and comes into lively exercise, this brings in the brightness of hope and drives away black lust and fear with it. Love is the spirit of adoption, or the childlike principle. If that slumbers, men fall under fear, which is the spirit of bondage, or the servile principle, and so on the contrary. And if love, or the spirit of adoption, be carried to a great height, it quite drives away all fear, and gives full assurance. 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. These two opposite principles of lust and holy love bring fear or hope into the hearts of God's children, just in proportion as they prevail. That is, when left of their own natural influence without something adventitious or accidental intervening as the distemper of melancholy, doctrinal ignorances, prejudices of education, wrong instruction, false principles, peculiar temptations, and so on. Fear is cast out by the Spirit of God no other way than by the prevailing of love, nor is it ever maintained by His Spirit but when love is asleep. At such a time, in vain is all the saint's self-examinations and pouring on past experience in order to establish his peace and get assurance. For it is contrary to the nature of things, as God hath constituted them, that he should have assurance at such a time. They therefore directly swore God's wise and gracious constitution of things, who exhort others to be confident in their hope, when in dead frames, under a notion of living by faith and not by sight, and trusting God in the dark, and living upon Christ and not upon experiences, and who warned them not to doubt of their good estate, lest they should be guilty of the dreadful sin of unbelief. It has a direct tendency to establish the most presumptuous hypocrites, and to prevent their ever calling their state in question, how much soever wickedness rages, reigns in their hearts, and prevails in their lives, under a notion of honoring God, by hoping against hope, and confidently trusting in God when things look very dark. And doubtless vast has been the mischief that has been done this way. Persons cannot be said to forsake Christ and live on their experiences merely because they use them as evidences of grace, for there are no other evidences that they can take. But then may persons be said to live upon their experiences when they make a righteousness of them, and when, instead of keeping their eye on God's glory and Christ's excellency, they turn it on themselves. 
They entertain their minds by viewing their own attainments, their high experiences, and the great things they have met with, which are bright and beautiful in their own eyes. They are rich and increased with goods in their own apprehensions, and think that God has as admiring an esteem of them on the same account as they have of themselves. This is living on experiences and not on Christ, and is more abominable in the sight of God than the gross immorality of those who make no pretenses to religion. But this is a far different thing from improving experiences as evidences of an interest in a glorious Redeemer. Section 12 Nothing can be certainly concluded concerning the nature of religious affections that the relations persons give of them are very affecting. The true saints have not such a spirit of discerning that they can certainly determine who are godly and who are not. For though they know experimentally what true religion is and the internal exercises of it, yet these are what they can neither feel nor see in the heart of another. Stoddard writes in the nature of saving conversion, Men may have the knowledge of their own conversion. The knowledge that other men have of it is uncertain, because no man can look into the heart of another and see the workings of grace there." There is nothing in others that comes within their view but outward manifestations and appearances, but the scripture plainly intimates that this way of judging what is in men by outward appearances is at best uncertain and liable to deceit. 1 Samuel 16.7 The Lord seeth not as men seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Isaiah 11.3 He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Solomon Stoddard writes that all visible signs are common to converted and unconverted men, and a relation of experiences among the rest, in quote, appeal to the learned. Oh, how hard it is for the eye of man to discern betwixt chaff and wheat, and how many upright hearts are now censored whom God will clear. And how many false hearts are now approved when God will condemn? Men at most beget but a conjectural knowledge of another state, and they that shall peremptorily judge either way may possibly wrong the generation of the upright, or on the other side, absolve and justify the wicked. And truly, considering what has been said, it is no wonder that dangerous mistakes are so frequently made in this matter. In quote, Flavel's Husbandry Spiritualized, Chapter 12. They commonly are but poor judges and dangerous counselors in soul cases who are quick and peremptory in determining person states, vaunting themselves in their extraordinary faculty of discerning and distinguishing in these great affairs, as though all was open and clear to them. They betray one of these three things, either that they have had but little experience, or are persons of a weak judgment, or that they have a great degree of pride and self-confidence and so ignorance of themselves. Wise and experienced men will proceed with great caution in such an affair. When there are many probable appearances of piety in others, it is the duty of the saints to receive them cordially into their charity, to love and rejoice in them as their brethren in Christ Jesus. But yet the best of men may be deceived when the appearances seem to them exceeding fair and bright, even so as entirely to gain their charity and conquer their hearts. It has been a common thing in the Church of God for bright professors received as eminent among the saints to fall away and come to nothing. 
shepherd in his parable of the ten virgins, quote, Be not offended if you see great cedars fall, stars fall from heaven, great professors die and decay. Do not think they be all such. Do not think that the elect shall fall. Truly some are such that when they fall, one would think a man truly sanctified might fall away, as the Armenians think. 1 John 2.19 They were not of us. I speak this because the Lord is shaking, and I look for great apostasies, for God is trying all his friends through all the Christian world. In Germany, what professions were there? Who would have thought it? The Lord who delights to manifest that openly, which was hid secretly, sends a sword, and they fall. The saints may approve thee, and God condemn thee. Revelation 3.1 Thou hast the name that thou livest, and art dead. Men may say, There is a true Nathaniel, and God may say, There is a self-causing Pharisee. Listener, thou hast heard of Judas and Demas, of Ananias and Sapphira, of Hymenaeus and Philetus, once renowned and famous professors, and thou hast heard how they proved at last, in quote, Flavel's touchstone of sincerity. And this we need not wonder at if we consider the things already observed, things which may appear in men who are altogether graceless. Nothing hinders but that all these things may meet together in men, and yet they be without a spark of grace in their hearts. They may have a kind of love to the brethren, great appearances of admirations of God's perfections and works, sorrow for sin, reverence, submission, self-abasement, gratitude, joy, religious longings, and zeal for the interest of religion and the good of souls. These affections may come after great awakenings and convictions of conscience, and there may be great appearances of a work of humiliation. Counterfeit love and joy and other affections may seem to follow one another just in the same order that is commonly observable in the holy affections of true converts. And these religious affections may be carried to a great height, may cause abundance of tears, yea, may overcome the nature of those who are the subjects of them, and may make them affectionate, fervent, and fluid in speaking of the things of God, and dispose them to be abundant in it. They may have many sweet texts of scripture and precious promises brought with great impression on their minds, and their affections may dispose them with their mouths to praise and glorify God in a very ardent manner, and fervently to call upon others to praise Him, exclaiming against their unworthiness and extolling free grace. They may, moreover, dispose them to abound in the external duties of religion, such as prayer, hearing the word preached, singing, and religious conference, and these things attended with a great resemblance of Christian assurance in its greatest height, when the saints mount on eagles' wings above all darkness and doubting. I think it has been made plain that there may be all these things and yet nothing more than the common influences of the Spirit of God, joined with the delusions of Satan, and a wicked and deceitful heart. To which it may be added that all these things may be attended with a sweet natural temper, a good doctrinal knowledge of religion, a long acquaintance with the saints' way of expressing their affections and experiences, and a natural ability and subtlety in accommodating their expressions and manner of speaking to the dispositions and notions of the hearers, with a taking decency of expression and behavior formed by a good education. How great, therefore, may the resemblance be as to all outward expressions and appearances between a hypocrite and a true saint. 
Doubtless it is the glorious prerogative of the omniscient God as a great searcher of hearts to be able well to separate between the sheep and goats. And what an indecent self-exaltation and arrogance is it in poor fallible dark mortals to pretend that they can determine and know who are really sincere and upright before God and who are not. Many seem to lay great weight on that and suppose it to be what may determine them with respect to others, real piety, when they not only tell a plausible story, but when, in giving an account of their experiences, they make such a representation and speak after such a manner that they feel their talk, that is to say, when their talk seems to harmonize with their own experiences, and their hearts are touched, affected, and delighted by what they hear them say, and drawn out by it in dear love to them. But there is not that certainty in such things, and that full dependence to be laid upon them which many imagine. A true saint greatly delights in holiness. It is a most beautiful thing in his eyes, in God's work, and a saving, renewing, and making holy and happy a poor perishing soul appears to him a most glorious work. No wonder, therefore, that his heart is touched and greatly affected when he hears another give a probable account of this work wrought on his own heart, and when he sees in him probable appearances of holiness, whether those pleasing appearances have anything real to answer them or no. And if he use the same words which are commonly used to express the affections of true saints and tell of many things following one another in an order agreeable to the method of another's experience, and also speak freely and boldly and with an air of assurance, no wonder that the other thinks his experiences harmonize with his own. And if besides all this, and given his relation, he speak with much affection, and above all, if in speaking he show much affection, such affection as the Galatians did to the Apostle Paul, these things will naturally have a powerful influence to affect and draw his hearer's heart, and open why the doors of his charity towards him. David speaks as one who had felt Ahithophel's talk, and had once a sweet savor and relish of it, and therefore exceeding great was his surprise and disappointment when he fell. It was almost too much for him. Psalm fifty-five, twelve to 14 It was not an enemy, then I could have borne it, but it was thou a man mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together, and walked into the house of God in company. End quote. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.